Um, the Bible reading uh, tonight is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Uh, to 35, yeah. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow, follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark. If I met you, welcome to church tonight. Uh, if you're joining us on the live stream, it's good to have you with us. Uh, if you're listening to my voice on the podcast, then hello to you through time and space. Um, I, I, I don't know about you, I've been reflecting this week about how uncertain the future is. And there were times this week even where we weren't sure whether we were going to meet together this week. Who knows what's going to happen next week? And I've, the, the verse from, from the book of James, chapter 4, comes to mind, where James writes, "'Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes.'" Uh, in a world where we don't know what is going to happen tomorrow, we ought to be thankful for what we have today. And I just want to say I'm really thankful this Sunday, perhaps more than any other Sunday that I can remember, for being able to gather with you as God's family together. What a precious gift it is to have this time. Uh, what a precious gift it is to have God's word speaking to us tonight. Um, th- there's, no, there's no softening this passage that we're looking at tonight. This is a passage that's going to confront us. And I want to tell you that up front because I'm not going to try and soften the blow tonight. <laughs> that's not my job, I don't think. Uh, my job is to try and help you to understand what Jesus is saying to you in his word tonight. Fair warning, it's not easy. So I think we need God's help. Let's pray and we'll get stuck in. Father, thank you so much for the precious gift that we have of this time together. Lord, there is nowhere that we would rather be than in your presence, hearing your voice, singing your praises with your people. And so we really do thank you for this privilege tonight. Uh, God, we, we need your words. Uh, they show us who you are. They reveal to us who we are. They point us in faith to the Lord Jesus, our saviour and our rescuer. We need your words tonight. So please give us ears to hear you speaking. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've uh, ever been in uh, that situation where you get sucked into a great offer that seems too good to be true and that you find out actually afterwards that there was a a great cost that was hidden uh, somewhere in the fine print. 
I remember when I was sort of in my late teenage years, whilst I was still at uni, I signed up for one of those free one-month gym memberships that, you know, the people in the shopping centre were trying to get you to sign up for at the time. My own mistake. It sounded too good to be true, and it was, uh, because what I discovered after I signed on the dotted line was that there was this binding contract that I'd signed up for, and there were all sorts of costs and fees associated with it that absolutely crippled me. Now... I was a uni student at the time, a poor uni student, and it doesn't take much to cripple a poor uni student financially, so maybe that wasn't their intention. But my experience was that this salesman who had been trying to kind of get me over the line was so friendly and so helpful and so warm uh, until the moment when I'd signed on the dotted line. And then they became very evasive, very hard to deal with, and not very helpful at all. Uh, it took weeks and weeks and weeks of chasing this salesman, trying to, trying to bump into him at his office at the gym, trying to reach him on the phone, leaving messages after messages, jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop, filling out all these forms to try and cancel my gym membership. It's, it's kind of horrible to be sucked into one of those deals like that, isn't it? Uh, just this past week, I've been online, uh, I'm going on a trip, or at least I think I'm going on a trip in May, uh, it remains to be seen, but I've been trying to buy travel insurance this week. And it's come home to me that you have to be very careful when you're handing over money with uh, companies like this because they will bury in the fine print all the details that you actually should know ahead of time. Uh, and it's, it's been pretty obvious this week that uh, none of these travel agencies, none of these, uh, these insurance companies are really earning my money because none of them will cover uh, this trip if it ends up getting cancelled because of the coronavirus. But that's kind of how, how these things work, isn't it? Uh, first, there's this great offer, a low price to get you over the line, and then only after you've signed up, oh, by the way, here's all the extra costs that we didn't tell you about at the start. Now, as we get back to Luke chapter 14 tonight, finish off Luke chapter 14, in fact, you might remember if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, if you've been studying this passage in Bible study, that Jesus has been making an offer in this chapter. An incredible offer. An offer that sounds too good to be true. He's been at this, this Pharisee's dinner party and he's been rebuking them and explaining to them that attitudes like theirs have no place in the kingdom of God. But what he has been showing is that entry into the kingdom of God is for anyone who will humbly accept. Uh, that it is in fact for the lowly, the poor, the broken, the needy, the sinful, the ones who know that they have no rightful seat at God's table. They're the very ones God is going to invite. The ones who know that they have no chance to ever repay the generosity of God. They're the ones who are going to accept. It's an incredible offer that Jesus has been making throughout Luke chapter 14, that you and I and anyone is welcomed into eternity to feast and to celebrate with the Lord God Almighty. It's an offer that sounds almost too good to be true. It, it is such a good message, and I really do hope, friends, that as we've been studying Luke 14, that that, that good news has stirred your heart. I'm, I really do hope it has. But it's understandable, isn't it, as we get to this next chapter, next section in, in Luke 14, that many people are going to want to take Jesus up on that offer. And so as we rejoin uh, in verse 25, Jesus on the road again to Jerusalem, the party's finished, it's not surprising that we read that there are large crowds travelling with Jesus. These are people who are curious about that offer that he's been making. Now, just pause and think about how that situation would play out for most leaders in this world. I think the temptation for most leaders who are starting a movement would be in that situation to just say and do 
anything that you need to in order to get people to sort of lock in on that contract, to, to join your movement, to make promises that you couldn't keep. You know, follow me, your life will be great. Follow me, I'll make your dreams come true. Follow me, and it'll be your best life now. That would be the temptation, I think, for most leaders. Most leaders would sugarcoat things. They would lower the bar, and they would keep the costs into the small print, wouldn't they? Now, is that what Jesus is going to do in this situation? Is he going to be a slippery salesman here? Well, I don't think that's what Jesus does at all. Jesus is actually very upfront with us about the cost. You see, in this section, Jesus turns to this crowd and he does the opposite of what we might expect. He raises the bar. He spells it out for them in clear terms because he wants them to be aware of what following him will really mean. Uh, And as I've said before, these are hard confrontational kind of words but before we get into them I hope that you appreciate the fact that Jesus is doing this because it's refreshing isn't it that Jesus would be so honest here as to not hide the costs in the small print for you Jesus is not trying to pull one over on you no Jesus dignifies you by telling you the truth and by asking you to make an informed decision about what you're going to do with that Now, Jesus obviously knows as he does that, as he confronts this crowd following him, and as he's so blunt with them, that he stands to actually scare people away. He knows that that's a danger, and I'm aware that that's a danger, actually, as I try and represent Jesus' words to you today, for anybody here who might be sitting on the fence with Jesus, not quite sure about whether they want to follow him. Such blunt words may have the effect of scaring some of you away. So why does Jesus do that? Why, why does he come out guns blazing, scaring people off? I mean, it's not a very good recruitment strategy for the kingdom of God, is it? Well, as, as Rhiannon mentioned at the beginning, the reason why Jesus does this is because he's not interested in spectators. He's interested in recruits. Jesus does not want fans. He wants followers. And so unless this crowd's curiosity gives way to commitment, then Jesus just simply says that they cannot be his disciples. They're not the right people. And Jesus would rather tell this crowd now and save them the walk to Jerusalem. Now, as readers of Luke's gospel, that perhaps shouldn't surprise us because Jesus has been quite upfront about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God already. If you remember back in chapter 13, verse 23 and 24, somebody asks Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus' response is, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Jesus is quite upfront that there will be a cost, it will be difficult to enter the kingdom of God. He's not trying to pull one over on you here. Now, in, in our passage, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to highlight that cost. And in fact, there's two things that Jesus is going to show to us in our passage about the cost of, of being his disciples. The first thing that Jesus is going to say in verse 26 to 30 is that there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus. And friends, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time together tonight and much more briefly on the second point. There's a cost to following Jesus. Let me read for you again verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now for my money... I don't think that there's any more radical of a thing that Jesus says than those words. 
But can you picture what, how, how that would have gone down? Like, it would have been like a lead balloon to this crowd, wouldn't it? This thousands of people who are walking with Jesus to Jerusalem, full of energy for him, probably many of them standing there with their loved ones, you know, arm in arm. Can you imagine the offence to hear Jesus say that to these people? I mean, can, he, can Jesus really mean that? Isn't Jesus the guy who always talks about love? About loving your neighbour, loving your enemies? Can he really be telling us to hate our families here? I mean, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, he, he goes on, he writes a letter later on to the churches. And, and John says, actually, that to hate your brother and sister is akin to murder. So what, is, what does Jesus mean by this? I think that the way to understand what Jesus means in verse 26 is that he's using hyperbole. Hyperbole is a a way of speaking where you exaggerate something beyond the point in order to make your point. And so Jesus, I don't think, actually wants us to literally, you know, loathe and despise our families. No, Jesus has, in fact, been critical of the Pharisees for doing that exact thing, for failing to take care of their parents. Now, I think the way to understand it is, is to understand how this word hate is used in the Bible sometimes to describe uh, and to make a point about preferences and priorities. And so if, for example, you flick ahead a chapter or two in, to Luke chapter 16, if you've got a Bible, have a look at Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus used that word hate again in Luke 16, 13. This is what he says if you haven't got a Bible in front of you. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Occasionally the Bible will say when you've got a choice between two things, it's the choice to either hate or love. Those are your two options. And I think that's what Jesus is doing back here in in Luke chapter 14. Uh, The issue that he's talking about is one of priority. Jesus is saying that you are to prioritize him over mother, father, wife, children, brother, sister. Jesus is making an astounding claim here, isn't he? He is claiming that our devotion to him should be so great, so pure, so unqualified, so unconditional that even the greatest love we have for anyone else in our life should look like hatred in comparison. And if we don't do that, Jesus says we cannot be his disciples. Now, that's, that is a hard and an offensive thing to say, isn't it? And, and for us, it's, it, it's, it's offensive, despite the fact that we live in a highly individualistic culture where family ties are not nearly as strong as they were in the collectivist culture of first century Palestine, where your identity and your worth was tied up with your family and your tribe and your town. Can you imagine the offense that Jesus would be causing to such people? This is radical stuff, isn't it? And the thing to wrestle with here is to try and get a picture of really what that looks like. It's all well and good to say, hate your family, love me more than your family, but really, like, how does that play itself out in our lives? The way I understand it is that Jesus is calling us to, to have a radical reprioritizing of our lives. In, in all areas of decision-making in our lives, we have a different way to make decisions now for all sorts of decisions, for the decisions about what job I'm going to take, about whether I'm going to accept a promotion or not, decisions about who I will date and who I will marry, 
decisions about how I will choose to express my sexuality, where I will choose to live, how I will use my spare time, how I will use my money, what hobby I choose to give myself to. The issue in all of those decisions, now for the, for the follower of Jesus, the issue is not what I want or what will please me or even what my family has always done. The issue is now for a Christian, what will please Jesus? We are to love him, please him more than anyone else. Now, how do you know if you're doing that? How do you know in your heart if Jesus is number one with a bullet? It's difficult to gauge, isn't it? Let me put a couple of questions to you and, and you self-diagnose your heart about how you feel about these kind of things. Let me ask you, if God called you to leave your parents and to go to the mission field, or if God called your child to leave and go to the mission field, would you be okay with that? If God would to take your husband or your wife or your child in death, would you quit God at that point? If your family would have threatened to disown and disinherit you because you're a follower of Jesus, well, would you renounce him? Now, those might sound like, you know, like really extreme and really far-fetched kind of scenarios that none of us will ever find ourselves in. But let me reassure you, friends, that there are members of our church who have navigated and who are navigating today those exact dilemmas. There is a cost in following Jesus. Are you prepared to prioritize him above all others? This is hard, isn't it? It's, it's scary, it's frightening stuff to think about what it might cost us and what we might leave behind if we are to follow Jesus. But I want to try and comfort you a little bit here, friends, and try and remind you, not just of, of what it will cost you, what you will leave behind, but I want to remind you of what you stand to gain by following Jesus. Because you, you have to see this in perspective. Uh, in his famous little book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan kind of tells an allegory of the Christian life. And in, in his book, the main kind of protagonist is a man named Christian who reads the book and he becomes convicted of his sins and his need to pursue salvation in Jesus. And so towards the beginning of the book, Christian has to run away from his home and from his family who live in the place called the City of Destruction. And this is what Bunyan writes. He says, so I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he'd not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. You can kind of picture the scene, can't you? This is a man who loves his wife and children, by the way. And they're standing on the threshold saying, where are you going? Will you really leave us to pursue Christ? Bunyan goes on. But the man put fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. In the book, people think that Christian is a lunatic for doing this, just the same kind of way that people think Christians today are lunatics for following Jesus. And some of his friends try and stop him, and, and they catch up to him, and they remind him about what he's leaving behind, the cost of leaving his home and his family. But Christian's not convinced. And instead, he tries to recruit them to come with him and to chase this salvation. And this is what Christian says. He says, All which you shall forsake 
is not worthy to be compared with a little of that that I am seeking to enjoy. I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, and it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be bestowed on them that diligently seek it. Friends, following Jesus does have a cost, but you have to remember that there is also great reward for those who follow him. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away. Following Jesus will mean for you that you must prioritise him above all else in your life. And you know what else it'll mean? Verse 27, it will mean that you have to die to yourself. So read verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, says Jesus, cannot be my disciple. Now that kind of language, carrying your cross, it's a powerful image, isn't it? Despite the fact that we kind of cheapen that phrase today by talking about you know, the minor inconveniences in our life as carrying our cross. You know, I've got a really noisy neighbour that I live next to. That's my cross to bear. No, the cross is a symbol of death. It's a torture device. And Jesus is saying and reminding us here that he himself is on the way to Jerusalem where he is going to face the cross and he is going to die. And he turns to this vast multitude of people and he says, if you're not prepared to do that, if you are not prepared to put yourself to death, then you cannot be my disciple. It's it's very black and white here, isn't it? There's not much grey in the middle for Jesus. It's, it's an absolute condition of discipleship, but it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, when you think about it? Because if Jesus is going to Jerusalem because of my rebellion towards God, because of the things that I do and say, because of my attitudes and my actions and the ambitions that I have that are not in line with God's ambitions for me, if Jesus went to his death out of his love for me to suffer God's judgment for these things which wreck our lives and which wreck other people's lives. If Jesus incurred God's just judgment and he went to his death for that, well then for us to carry on and say, well, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm I'm just going to keep living for myself. For us to say, "I'll, I'll follow Jesus, but I'll keep that habit that I know he hates. To say, I'll follow Jesus, but I'll retain that attitude that he died for. Do you see how, how that would be a complete denial of what Jesus has done for us? Jesus says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And the word carry there, it's in the present tense. It's an ongoing kind of a verb. The idea is whoever does not carry and go on carrying, putting to death daily every act, every attitude, every desire, every ambition, every habit, every addiction that would cause Jesus displeasure and for which he died, such a person cannot, cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say, if you do those things, you won't be a very good disciple. He says, such a person cannot be my disciple. This is not Jesus sneaking these terms into the fine print, is it? This is Jesus loud and clear. He wants us to understand this, about what it will mean to follow him. And so he says to us, friends, that if that's what it's going to cost, then you ought to count the cost before you follow me. Have a look at verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? 
For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Uh, On the corner of the street that I grew up in, uh, there is a a house that's kind of famous in our suburb. Uh, It's the best way to describe it is it looks like a very large gingerbread house. It's uh, it's not a good-looking architectural design, if you ask me. The man who uh, who built this house on my parents' street corner started building it after we moved in, so after 1996. And the house is still not finished to this day, some 25 years later. And it's actually now in a pretty bad state of repair. And every time now I drive to my parents' house and I turn into the street, I see this thing in front of me and I think to myself, what an eyesore. (laughs) And what a shame. What an embarrassment. What a fool this person was for starting building such a project only to leave it now in ruins. Jesus says in the same way how foolish it would be to start out on this road following him without a clear picture of what it will cost you. And then when suddenly the scope of the project dawns on you, well, you pull the plug. Don't be those sort of people. When it comes to following the Lord Jesus, friends, please understand this, that it is not the thought that counts. It is not the thought that counts when it comes to following Jesus. Count the cost. There is a great cost when it comes to following Jesus. In his uh, famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, the the German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined this phrase uh, called cheap grace. And he he, he defined cheap grace like this, uh, that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer is saying there is this thing called cheap grace that some people are peddling which talks only of the benefits of Christianity and not at all of the cost. Hence, it's cheap. It's cheap grace. But friends, do you see that God's grace is not cheap? It is free. Please don't mishear me. God's grace is free to you, but it's not cheap. It is extremely costly, isn't it? What will God's grace cost you? If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Have you counted the cost of following Jesus, friends? It's interesting in that the parable of the man who builds the tower that Jesus' advice to that person is that what they should have done they sh- is that they should have sat down before the thing started and, and figured it all out, done their sums. Now remember, remember who Jesus is speaking to in this particular moment. He's speaking to this great crowd of hangers-on, these curious onlookers who are just kind of drifting along with him to Jerusalem. And so it's quite intentional, it's quite, inevit- uh, um, quite confrontational that Jesus sort of turns to this group of people and he says, just stop walking, just stop right where you are You ought to sit down right now and count the cost of what this is going to mean if you come with me. It's good advice, isn't it? I think we should do that. We should count the cost. We should sit down. and You're already sitting down, so you're halfway there. Let's do that now. Let's add it up, what it might cost you to follow Jesus on this road. Let's say that following Jesus sets you against your HR department at work happening already in Australia, it's probably going to happen more. Let's say that following Jesus sets you against the government 
not yet happening in Australia, but happening all over the world. Let's say that following Jesus sets us against our denomination and that we might stand to forfeit our building and our licenses. Again, not happening yet, but it is around the world. Let's say that following Jesus sets you against your parents and your children and your brothers and sisters. Let's say, as it might for some of us, that following Jesus risks your safety, your freedom and your life. All of those things are risks if you follow Jesus. Have you counted that cost, friends? Are you, are you all in with Jesus no matter what? Because you do not want to be one of those people who, who is happy to follow Jesus when the stakes are low, when it's easy, and, and when you're full of zeal and your blood is pumping, and then when going gets tough, you slink home with your tail between your legs. No, you do not want to be one of those people. You cannot be one of those people because Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of me, every single part. Jesus will not play second fiddle to your wife or husband. Jesus will not play second fiddle to your kids. Jesus will not play second fiddle to your job. Does Jesus have all of you? There is a cost to following him and he wants us to know that up front. Now, that, that is only half the picture that Jesus gives to us. And so the, the second and, and briefer thing that we're going to look at that Jesus wants us to know about following him is not only is there a cost to following him, there is a cost to not following Jesus. Uh, if you choose to not follow him, there's a cost associated with that as well. And now, I suppose as, as we think about this, I want to be clear who I'm speaking to at this point. I am at this point, speaking to anyone who's on the fence with Jesus, who is not yet a follower of his and who's been kind of putting off that decision, just waiting, thinking about whether it's right and whether it's worthwhile to hitch your wagon to Jesus. Uh, there, there are people who come to our church every single week uh, who are investigating Jesus, who are asking questions, looking into this. And, and if that's you, then I want to say this is so wonderful that you're here. We are so pleased and you are so welcome to be here. But I, I do want to be clear that these words are particularly addressed to you. They're also particularly addressed to any Christians who are on the road with Jesus, who are perhaps questioning whether they might throw in the towel. This is what Jesus wants you to know. And he tells here a second little parable in verse 31 and 32. And uh, it's an interesting little story about a king and going to war. And it's a story which, until this week, my whole Christian life, I had always read it in one particular way. I'd always understood that what Jesus is saying here is essentially the same point as the first parable. He's just saying, make sure you count the cost before you go into a kind of a big costly endeavor. But this past week, I've actually come to understand that Jesus is probably saying something different here. And I want to try and show you what that is. I think what Jesus is saying with this story is that we've got to understand the cost of not following him. So let's, let's read from verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Now, the question I think to ask is, well, who is the king that's coming against him? And I can't help but think that the image of a king coming towards us quite accurately depicts the Lord Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is already on the road to Jerusalem, to the capital of Israel. 
Uh, Jesus has already summoned Israel to bend the knee, to repent. Jesus has warned about a coming judgment. Jesus has demonstrated that he is the king with all authority and power. And now he is advancing and advancing and advancing. And so if you decide not to follow this king, well, that's a decision that is fraught with danger because Jesus is the one with absolute power. He is the one who commands the legions and the armies of heaven. Jesus is the one who has been entrusted with the judgment of the living and the dead. Jesus now, friends, is the one who has risen from death and who will return to judge every man, woman, and child. So you, you can and you should think of the cost of following Jesus in terms of what you stand to lose if you choose to follow him. But you should also consider the cost of not following him. Can you afford to stand against that king? Because you will be overthrown. So Jesus says what you ought to do is you ought to come and seek peace with this advancing king while there is time. And Jesus' terms of peace here, they're clear, but they're uncompromising. Look at verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. If you want peace with Jesus, the king who is advancing upon you, then you need to lay aside everything. There's a choice to make. And I think that the final couple of verses in this chapter bring that choice into really stark and clear contrast with all that talk about salt there in verse 34 and 35. Now, it's a bit tricky to know exactly kind of what Jesus is getting at there. And commentators have a range of different opinions about what Jesus is referring to, what's the background, what's the deal with Palestinian salt, losing its saltiness, all that kind of thing. There's lots of different opinions, but what the commentators all agree on is that the main point of what Jesus is saying is very clear. That salt is good, but if it were to lose its saltiness, it would be useless. And the analogy Jesus is making is that any disciple of his who loses that distinctive quality that makes them a disciple, complete and total surrender to their king, if you were to lose that quality, such a person is not fit to be called a disciple. Such a person, says Jesus, will be thrown out. Can you afford to not follow Jesus? This is a scary warning. It's designed to shock us and to shake us out of complacency and putting off deciding to follow him. But do understand that that Jesus gives us this warning out of love. Please understand that. This is not to keep you awake at night. This is so that you will sleep easy. You know, at the beginning of a wedding, wedding ceremony, if you kind of have ever heard the traditional kind of wedding vows, the minister, the pastor, is standing there between these, before these two people who are choosing to come together in marriage. And you know the kind of the traditional words that they say talking about this moment? They describe how marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly. But the traditional words say this, rather reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Now, When the pastor says those words, he's not trying to scare those people from coming together, and quite the opposite. He's trying to help them come together. He's trying to help them to do it in a way so that they have the right expectations, so that they know what this endeavor is going to require of them. And Jesus is doing the same thing here, out of love, 
out of concern for you, he is reminding you that whilst salvation is free, it is also very costly. There is no fine print with Jesus here. He wants us to know that up front. Friends, what does it cost to enter the kingdom of God? Well, it costs nothing. What does it cost to enter the kingdom of God? It costs everything. Because Jesus wants all of you. Many of you have probably heard something of the story of uh, C.T. Studd, famous missionary, Charles Thomas Studd. He was the founder of the mission agency WEC. He's got a fascinating life story. He was born in England uh, to a very wealthy uh, family. He himself was a graduate from Cambridge. He played cricket for England. He was you know, top draw in British society. He became a Christian. And when the call of God came upon his life for him to, to leave and to go and become a missionary, ultimately in Africa where he would die, uh, God put it upon his heart that he couldn't, it wouldn't be appropriate for him to go and do that with a giant bank balance waiting for him back in England. Uh, Stud kind of reasoned to himself and he said, if I retain that for myself, I'll never know whether I'm really trusting God. So as a result, he gave all his money away, except for a nest egg that he kept, as a, you know, a portion of his funds. He kept it behind in an account for his wife. And he gave his wife a little poem at the same time that she was supposed to read every morning as she did her devotions. And this is what the poem said. Dear Lord Jesus, you are to me dearer than Charlie ever could be. Now, why was C.T. Studd wanting his wife to know that and to believe that? Because he was trying to disciple her into the truth of Luke 14, that there would come a day, one day, when she would not have Charlie, but she would always have the Lord Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Uh, the story of C.T. Studd and his wife takes an interesting turn because his wife found out about the money in the nest egg. And as she grew in her faith and became kind of more serious about her devotion to Jesus, she confronted C.T. Studd and she said to him, you mean to say that you can trust God by relinquishing everything, but I can't? No, 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 give it all away. <laughs> and so together they reasoned that they ought to give away that sum of money too, a sum of about 100,000 pounds at the time, which in today's money is millions of dollars. And they gave it all away to William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples, said Jesus. Incidentally, William Booth, who they gave the money to, the man who founded the Salvation Army, he was once, once asked why it was that the Salvation Army had been so blessed under his leadership. Somebody put the question to him, what is the secret of God's use of you? And this is William Booth's answer. I want to read it to you. I will tell you the secret. God has had all that there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, even greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army, it is because God has had all of the adoration of my heart, all of the power of my will, and all of the influence of my life. 
What does entry into God's kingdom cost you? Nothing. What does entry into God's kingdom cost you? Everything. Because Jesus wants all of you. So my, my plea to you tonight, friends, as we finish Luke chapter 14, is to count the cost of following Jesus, but to follow him at all costs. Let me pray. Almighty God, we know that we are half-hearted creatures who do not desire you above all things, even on our best days. Please forgive us. Please teach us to be your disciples, to give all of ourselves to you, for you gave all of yourself for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.